another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Lamar once again. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. Okay, well, I've been looking forward to this episode because we're going to discuss more briefs. And the, the puns will not stop until after December 5th when the oral argument in the Moore versus United States case will be heard. Um, and Andy, on that score, you know, you and I have talked about John Belushi and the Blues Brothers, our friend uh, Bob Woodward. Actually, one of his lesser known books is actually a, a book about John Belushi. But you and I, the Blues Brothers, are going to be reunited there's going to be a road trip once again. I'm sure you will drive and I will you know, not. Um, and we're going to actually be there at the oral argument. And thank you, Justice Breyer, for making this possible. And by the way, Justice Breyer is going to be a guest at a future podcast event. He's already agreed to do it. We just haven't scheduled it yet. He's a rake. We've been teasing it for some time. Yes. But he, and but, uh, and I, feel, I feel teased myself because <laughs> you can imagine I'm looking forward to it. And, and, went, and with uh, Andy, with luck, it's possible that after the oral argument, we might even be able to pay a courtesy call on him. He, he may be in town that day. So fingers, that'd be great. fingers crossed. And our, T- okay. and our TA team is going to be able to join us on this. And the great Chris Duggan, our legal eagle colleague, is going to also, I think, be able to join us. So this is going to be fun on December 5th. And we'll let the audience in. You know, we'll, t- we'll tell them you know, what happened after it's happened. You know, you mentioned the TA team. I mean, I'm really glad that the students are going to be coming um, you know, we, last year, as we mentioned in a previous episode, you know, in the Moore versus Harper brief, the students were very much involved. Yes. So it was really a learning they were spectacular. experience. Yes. So, you know, obviously, you know, you, you think it was great. I think it was great. They did a great, I had the opportunity to meet them. They were very impressive. How was it for them? I mean, have they, have they reacted to, have they told you that it was a worthwhile experience um, for them? They have. And in fact, in our last episode, Andy, we mentioned some of my favorite judges. We mentioned Kevin Newsom. We mentioned Roy Altman. We mentioned Jose Cabranes. My main TA team, actually, they're clerking for those three judges, among others. Several of them have more than one clerkship. My TA team spanned the political spectrum. I think at least two of them are card-carrying Democrats, maybe all three, but they're open to to clerking for, in two cases, Trump-appointed judges. Jose Cabranes, I believe, was appointed to the federal district court by a Republican president in the Court of Appeals by a Democratic president, Jimmy Carter. I'd have to double-check that. Actually, Akil, he was appointed by President Jimmy Carter to the district court and by President Clinton to the Court of Appeals. But he is uh, highly regarded by both parties, certainly. They have told me that they thought this was a really good experience learning how to, to, to make legal arguments that would appeal to people across the constitutional and ideological spectrum. Yeah, and of course, that, that goes to some of the theme of our last episode, which had to do with crossing the aisle. You know, one of the reasons you want to talk to people on the other side of the aisle is First of all, you'd like to convince them, but also you want to know what their arguments are. Yeah. Um, 
So particularly as a, as a lawyer, one would think. Okay. And, and Andy, so Andy, they listen to the podcast, so we should actually mention their names. Just they, they deserve, you know, just a, a shout out. And special thanks to Jacob Hutt, to Jordan Kron, and to Arshan Barzani. Yes, thank you. Okay, and we're going to have a great time in D.C. Um, all right, so more and more, actually, two mores. Um, so we have more Moores in this case. Um, it's Charles G. Moore and Kathleen F. Moore versus the United States of America. Tell me about the brief. What's the, what's the, you know, why is it different from other briefs? From why other is briefs? this night different yes. than all other nights? I feel like I'm back at yes. Seder asking the four questions. Yes, but uh, you know why? Why should someone read this brief in particular? Why is it is it unique or is it a me too? Our first sentence of the brief, and I actually think it's true, even though it's, alas, immodest, in our summary of the argument, and I keep saying our because this is with the great Vic Amar, former dean of the University of Illinois College of Law. He's now on the faculty at, back on the faculty at UC Davis, although he retains an affiliation to the University of Illinois. Yale Law School graduate, former Supreme Court clerk to Harry Blackman, but also my kid brother. And here's the first sentence of our summary of argument. Most of the other briefs in this case have missed the point. Wow. That, and if that doesn't get your attention, then I don't know how to get your attention. And if I always say that and the justices never agree with my position, then I'm a bit of a crackpot. Okay? But... There are lots of briefs. It's possible that this case has as many briefs, if we count all the amicus briefs, as any other case this term. Lots of law professors and experts and ideological groups and public interest groups of various sorts are weighing in. So dozens of amicus briefs, maybe close to a dozen briefs by scholars alone. Definitely, if you count number of scholars rather than number of briefs, more than a dozen scholars have waited. Ours is one brief, two scholars, Vic and yours truly. So lots of people have weighed in, and our first sentence, and our brief was filed after almost all the others were already in, and we said, as you've heard, that we think most of the other briefs have missed the key point. So when I looked at some of the other briefs, um, I, I can't say I've read them all, but I looked at a bunch of them, and most of them kind of took this position. Um, well, they didn't all take the same position because some were on one side and some were on the other. But they kind of approached the case this way, I think. There's this tax, the mandatory repatriation tax, okay, which was passed in, and signed into law in 2017. By the way, on 2017, and, Donald Trump signed this bill into law. It's being attacked mainly by uh, conservative Republicans, truth be told. But Donald Trump signed this bill into law. This was at the beginning of his administration when his party controlled the House and the Senate. The point that some people hold uh, in contention here is that this tax taxes what some people term as unrealized gains. Okay, so you maybe you had... Uh, Something that had that that you owned and it was worth a certain amount of money, and then at, you know at the end of this period of time, the year or whatever, it's worth more money. Now you haven't sold it, so you don't have you don't have any more money in your bank account, maybe, but you have this asset and it's worth more than it was before, 
and do you have to pay tax on it? Well, this bill says you have to pay tax on certain things that, f- that fall in that category. Okay, so that, that's the tax. And the briefs that I, that I looked at said, well, is it an income tax? Because if it's an income tax, then it's allowed because the 16th Amendment allows income taxes. If it's not an income tax, then it's not allowed mm-hmm. because the 16th Amendment only allows income taxes. Exactly. So that's so the so then they get into the question of is it an, an income tax? And there are different ways of arguing that. What's the definition of income? Blah 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 blah. Exactly. Um, and that that would put anybody to sleep. Okay, but then you come on and say you missed the point. Right. What's the point that they miss? Okay. Now let's let me read a sentence or two and then translate this sentence or two. And now you're reading from the summary of argument. Correct. The first sentence was most of the other briefs in this case have missed the point. And then we say this MRT, mandatory repatriation tax, he is whether it violates technically, it's actually a question whether it violates the apportionment clause of the original Constitution, not the 16th Amendment in the 20th century, the apportionment clause of the original Constitution, which says that certain kinds of taxes, namely direct taxes, have to be apportioned by state population, and this tax was not apportioned. And people say, well, it doesn't need to be because it's an income tax, and and therefore, okay, and people on the other side say, oh, but it's not an income tax, so therefore it needs to be apportioned, okay, because it's not income tax. And they say, no, you've missed the point. It doesn't violate Article One, Section 2, for, and this is in italics in the brief, for the simple and decisive reason that the MRT is neither a head tax nor a real estate tax and is thus not a direct tax, that's a quote, subject to the Constitution's apportionment requirement. This is true regardless of the 16th Amendment. In other words, it's true whether or not the MRT is an income tax within the meaning of that 16th Amendment. A tax need not be an income tax to escape the apportionment requirement. It simply needs to be a revenue measure that is not a direct tax under Article One, Section 2. That's the summary. And in other words, everyone else is looking under the wrong Lamp post. Our audience, will, most of them will know the story of this drunk who's on his hands and knees. It's 3 a.m. and he's pawing around, obviously looking for someone. And someone comes along and says, what happened? And he says, I, I've lost my keys. And the fellow says, okay, I'll help you. And the two of them are pawing around together. And after about five minutes, he says, are you sure you dropped the keys here? And the drunk says, no, I actually drop the keys over there, but the light's better here, okay? So they're looking under the wrong lamppost, okay? Who cares about the 16th Amendment if it's not a direct tax? It's constitutional, and it does not have to be an income tax in order to be a not direct tax. Well, I think that the, you know, if you read, for example, the the Solicitor General's brief, you know, she she says, well, um, you know, before the late 19th century, 
it was well understood that only you know head taxes and real estate taxes or capitations and real estate taxes were the only types of direct right and capitation and court- from from the, the the Latin for head you know like you know capital punishment decapitation so capitation is a head tax it's a tax per person sometimes it's all called, called a poll tax uh, a poll it can be understood as a person p o l l so it's it's a, a tax on each individual person that's a capitation or a head tax mm-hmm. and so she so she says well um you know th- that's what that's what the court said um, that it, that it has to be, and it said said it again and again, but then came this case Pollock, and Pollock said income taxes are also uh, direct taxes, and everybody thought that was outrageous. So the Sixteenth Amendment got passed. It says no Supreme Court, um, income taxes are allowed. Okay, it doesn't say they're not direct taxes; just says they're allowed. Okay, so now Solicitor General Prelogger is saying. Oh well, that means if it's not an income tax, it's not allowed. So we have to prove that it's actually an income tax. So the question is, I guess, is Pollock correct? That is the question, Andy. And let's now connect it to Dobbs and Solicitor General P. Logger's performance in Dobbs. Okay, she, in Philip Bobbitt's terminology, is a doctrinalist, a precedent person. And Pollock is the precedent, just like Roe was a precedent. I'm an originalist. I'm a text history structure person. I say, if the precedent is wrong, screw the precedent. Whether the precedent is the Dred Scott case, and I'm with Abraham Lincoln saying Dred Scott was wrong. Or the precedent is Plessy versus Ferguson, and I say, that's a wrong precedent, toss it overboard, Brown versus Board of Education. The precedent is the Gobitis case upholding a compulsory flag salute order. Uh, If that's wrong, throw it overboard. That's the Barnett case. If the precedents aren't applying the Bill of Rights against the states, but you think the Constitution really was about that, Hugo Black says, throw those precedents overboard. And if Roe was wrong, if you can't defend it on the basis of the Constitution, it gets tossed overboard. Solicitor General Prelogger didn't like that approach. And that was her oral argument saying, precedent, precedent, precedent. And we said, that's not the argument you should be making. You should be making an argument from first principles and trying to defend Roe itself. Otherwise, you're very vulnerable. And Dobbs, in the end, tossed Roe overboard in the name of originalism, text history, and structure. Now, I'm appealing to the Dobbs court and saying, gee, if you were willing to toss overboard Roe, and you were right to do so if you thought that Roe was egregiously wrong, you need to do the same thing here. Pollock was wrong. You know, it should be tossed overboard. You don't need the 16th Amendment. It suffices to say Pollock was every bit as wrong as Plessy. And indeed, they come from the same era and they're linked. And you have the same justice dissenting in both cases. And we say that in our brief. And oh my gosh, if if I wanted a justice from this era to hold up, it would not be actually Oliver Wendell Holmes. That's the stupid stuff that people at Harvard are taught. Oh, it would be John Marshall Harlan, as in John Marshall Harlan, the first Justice Harlan, Justice Harlan the Elder, the great Justice Harlan, he dissented in Plessy. Oh, and he was right. And he dissented in 
Lochner, which we haven't talked about. Oh, and he was right. And Lochner got tossed overboard in the 1930s on originalist grounds. Oh, and he dissented in Pollock. And oh, he was right. He actually called it, in the Pollock case, quote, a disaster for the country. Now, you're hearing, Andy, the voice of an originalist saying, if the precedents were wrong, we need to go back to first principles of what the Constitution actually says. And Lincoln said that about Dred Scott, toss it overboard, it's wrong. And I say that about Plessy and Lochner and Pollock. And that was similar to what we talked about with, with Roe versus Wade, for example. So there's two ways to win this case. One, or at least, one is if the court believes that the 16th Amendment's definition of income tax inclu- you know, can, can be uh, read to encompass this tax. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one way to do it. And another way is, is if Pollock is wrong and if the original Constitution uh, was read correctly by the early courts, mm-hmm. um, then... It also is okay. Right. So the, I mean, there are taxes that are allowed that aren't income taxes. Exactly. So I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But just on to your point, the third paragraph of the brief, I'm going to leap, leap over the second. We're going to come back to that in just one second. We say, we hasten to add that like many other amici and the respondent, the respondent is the United States, is Solicitor General Prelogger, like them, we believe this MRT, this mandatory repatriation tax, can indeed be upheld under the 16th Amendment. So we agree with her position on the 16th Amendment, but we think if for some reason the court rejects that, actually the United States should still win on purely original grounds. And ours is actually the cleaner approach, and it's the better approach because Pollock was wrong, and it should be overruled because when the court gets something wrong, it should fix its error. Whether the wrongness is Lochner or Plessy or Gobitis, you know, Dobbs says Roe versus Wade. Here's why I do agree with Justice Prelogger, uh, Solicitor General Prelogger, excuse me. She may be a justice soon enough, and, and, and we wish her well. Um, she's very, very talented. I agree with her, but I'd spent not a sentence. Vic, Vic and I spent not a sentence, a syllable, explaining really why, because we thought they covered those issues well in her brief and in lots of the other Me Too briefs, the, the amicus briefs. Here's why, Just and then we'll come back to my brief. In economics, I learned about a man, a very great Yale economist, his name is Irving Fisher, and he actually generated some very famous equations, Fisher's, all about what income is. And we learned, this was almost literally the first day of econ, that what income is, definitionally to an economist, is the change in wealth, the delta of wealth between time one and time two. Put differently, more in a folksy way. There's a bathtub, there's water in the bathtub, and the spigot is on and the drain is open. The amount of water in the bathtub, the volume of water, that's like wealth. Okay, the spigot coming in, that's your gross income. The amount of water, whether it's rising or falling, just just the amount coming in versus the amount going out the drain, that would be the change in the volume of the, the water. That's your net income. If the water level stays exactly the same 
um, either because the spigot is, is closed and the drain is closed, no income. If the water level stays exactly the same because the spigot exactly counterbalances the drain, no net income. You had a certain inflow, but you also had a certain outgo. But if, if the water is increasing in the bathtub, if more is coming into the spigot than is going out of the drain, you experienced a net increase in wealth, the delta of your wealth, and that's called income. That's the Irving Fisher income uh, definition. And he's writing about all this stuff. Actually, Andy, same era that's generating the 16th Amendment. So that's a really simple point. There are other briefs, especially by my colleague, the great Bruce Ackerman, who talk about how the people who believed in an income tax, the progressives self-described, actually had a capacious definition of income. And indeed, the text says income from whatever source derived, doesn't say realized income, could have said realized income and didn't. So that's another point. It's a text and some history. And finally, I would say, especially in today's world, this is now a functional point, in our world today, you can often, if you want to, monetize, realize your um, gain. You can more easily cash out your, your position if you want to than was true at the founding when there were very thin markets. You can sell options of various sorts. You can uh, take out money through a mortgage or, or something like that. So you can get money. If your piggy bank has actually swelled, you know, there's, there's more money in that piggy bank than there, there used to be, there are ways to access the money in that piggy bank. And if more came in than went out, you experienced income. Okay, but that's not the argument you're making. Exactly, argument. it's yeah. not. It's the that, argument, that it's why I wrote in the, Vic and I in those sentences, we hasten to add that we agree that this can easily be upheld under the 16th Amendment. But they've missed the point because the real question, in my view, is what's a direct tax? And if it's not a direct tax, who cares if it's an income tax? And and that paragraph goes on, and you talk, you go on to say that you know the court need not reach the question mm -hmm. uh, of the Sixteenth Amendment, you know, which is kind of the, different from the way you put it a few minutes ago. Um, you said, well, um, they don't need to reach our argument, you know. They can, mm -hmm. But in fact, I think you know you, you're really thinking of it the other way that you, that here's the argument, and by the way, you don't have to reach the question about the Sixteenth Amendment. Right. But anyway, and we also um, say, listen, you, if you took the case to decide a 16th Amendment question, and now you realize it doesn't actually pivot on that, you could dismiss the case as improvidently granted. You could seek more briefing on the issue that the Amars are teeing up. You have many options, uh, Supreme Court. Right. So, and that's what I wanted to get to, which is that, you know, you have this footnote, footnote two, where you say that the, the court, the court may, might well consider dismissing the writ of certiorari as improvidently granted, and when you read the the brief again, going to the Solicitor General's brief, she has the question: What's the question posed? And the question posed is a Sixteenth Amendment question. Yes. So if that's all the, the, that the court took it for, then um, you know, and they think you're right, mm -hmm. then they don't need to reach that question. So that's why I think. The way that you put it, that the court need not reach the question mm -hmm. of the Sixteenth Amendment, actually is a maybe a better way of thinking about it than to think they may not, they need not reach your question. Well, especially because, as I said, 
I think they're under a fundamental obligation if they've made a very big mistake that has consequences that, are, that, that radiate to correct that mistake. I applaud the court for trying to correct its past mistakes. And this is actually ultimately a more foundational question than the 16th Amendment one. It, it goes to actually the very essence of what the Constitution was all about, in my view. It was all about national security, and our audience has heard that. And national security is all about armies. Okay. And you know what? You have to pay the army. And you know what you need for that? You need taxes. You can say, well, you can borrow. Well, you can't borrow infinitely, you know, because you've got to pay, pay it back at some point, you know, which students may not understand. But, but you and I understand that at some point you've got to pay stuff back. Constitution, in Amar's view, is all about, you know, my grand narrative, as people have heard before, is all about national security. And that's all about armies, and that's all about taxes, which is why Alexander Hamilton wrote, I believe, seven Federalist Papers, only 85. And he only wrote about half of them. So he wrote around you know, 40 or so. Half of the ones, uh, so of his 40, seven are just about taxes. And actually one in particular gives his definition of a direct tax. And I say, like, this is important. The most important, we're going to talk about it in a minute, case that the Supreme Court ever decided before Marbury versus Madison was a case all about taxes. It's the Hilton case. And I didn't know any of this five years ago. But in researching the last book, The Words That Made Us, I learned all about Hilton and Hamilton's role and George Washington's position and all of that. And I think because these issues are even more fundamental and the 16th Amendment, the court need not reach the 16th Amendment and, and should, in fact, reach the most fundamental questions about the founding era, the meaning of direct taxation under Article One, Section 2. Now you're calling it Hilton, the case. So we still, we, we, have we finally... Re- no, because I haven't had time. Arshan Barzan has sent me something on this, and he, uh, but I haven't had a chance to actually process it. I'm going to do that on a train ride tomorrow. Okay, so the, the, what we're talking about is whether to pronounce the case Hilton or Hylton. Yes, we've, it's H-Y-L-T-O-N. Correct. So you can call it Hilton, I'll call it Hylton for now, and then we'll figure it out later. Okay, so back uh, to the brief. Uh, Andy, I'm tempted to say let's call the whole thing off. Do, yeah. do you know the reference? You say potato, I say potato, you say tomato, I say tomato, blah, 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 blah. Let's call the whole thing off. It's, it's, it's about having cold feet, you know, as you're approaching uh, the, the wedding or something. Back to the brief. So now you skipped over the, the second paragraph. Right. Here. So what, what, what kind of point are you trying to make? Here? Oh, rhetorical and analytic, and it's all about originalism. Even though I told you the summary of argument, there's one sentence before the summary of argument. It's very brief. But most of the other amicus briefs, you have to, these are court rules. You have to identify the interest of the amicus or the amici. Here's what we say. It's very similar to what we said in Moore versus Harper. And when you read the other amicus briefs, oh, they go on at great length about who this person is, and they're distinguished in this way and that way and blah, 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 and they give all their credentials. And that's often proper because they have to introduce themselves to the court. Here's who we are. And this is why you should listen to us. So it's perfectly proper. The court tells you this is what you're supposed to do. Now, truthfully, I think the court kind of probably knows who we are. The clerks do. So we didn't go on to great detail. Very simple sentence because we didn't want to waste a lot of words on, you know, who we are. 
Interest of Amiki Curiae. Akhil Reed Amar and Vikram David Amar are constitutional scholars and historians who seek to aid this court in its efforts to practice principled constitutional decision-making and faithful originalism. Now, I mention that because, Andy, the second paragraph of the summary of argument is all about faithful originalism. This is very much a post-Dobbs, post-Moore versus Harper brief, because the court is signaling post-Bruin, this is what we're interested in. I believe that scholars of a certain sort can be especially helpful in that because it's hard for the justices to know all the history. But second paragraph is where we introduce the history. Here's what we say. And with a little bit of a rhetorical flourish, but here's what we say. Only head taxes, that is capitations, and real estate taxes are direct taxes within the meaning of the founder's constitution as understood by Wow! Exclamation point. George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, the overwhelming majority of the 1794 Congress and later early Congresses, and every, italics in the original, member of this court to opine on the issue in Hilton versus United States, 1796. The most important case this court decided pre-Marbury. Eventually, even James Madison and Thomas Jefferson repudiated their earlier Republican allies and came to agree with their Federalist counterparts on this issue. Post-founding, our approach also has on its side President Abraham Lincoln and Justice John Marshall Harlan the Elder, among countless others. On the other side, because we need to be candid with the court, we admit that Congressman James Madison once thought otherwise. That is, before he saw the light and forever changed his tune as President of the United States. Now, wow, there's a lot of things going on in that paragraph. We're dropping a lot of names and saying we've got a lot of, because law is ad hominem. And I'm saying, I got George Washington and Abe Lincoln. Oh, and did I mention, you know, John Marshall Harlan, the, the elder? Oh, and did I mention that James Madison eventually came around? Oh, and did I mention Alexander Hamilton? All the early Congresses, all the early members of the Supreme Court, we got all of them on our side. That's ad hominem to some extent. It's also originalist to a very great extent. And we're trying to tell the justices, oh, the earliest and, and most important precedent is also on our side too. So it's not just the first president, the first treasury secretary, the first con- or an early Congress. It's also the early justices getting it unanimously right. Now, these are the things that Solicitor General Prelogger kind of glossed over just a bit because she's focusing on the more recent cases because that's what a doctrinalist, a precedent person would do, focus on the more recent cases. An originalist, however, would really want to highlight the early cases, especially if they cast strong light on the original understanding. And I'm more of an originalist, you see. So there's a reason she did it one way and I'm doing it a different way. Right. Well, you know, if the case is about Pollock, then that's one thing. If the case is about the Constitution, then it's another thing. Yeah. Andy, on precedent, here's what I do say. I say, yeah, you know, it's true Pollock is wrong, but Hilton was right. So here's what I say. If petitioners, that is the people who are attacking this law, 
If petitioners are correct, then Hilton and the federal tax it upheld were wrong. If instead Hilton and its many founding era supporters are correct, then petitioners are wrong. Hilton is the key, see, not Pollock. And we respectfully urge every member of this court to read this landmark case carefully. Now, that's a little cheeky to tell them what to do. But what I am trying to do is say, forget Pollock. Who cares about Pollock? Please read Hilton. And it's short. And once you read Hilton, my God, your work is done. You'll see how easy it is because actually the case says what Akil says it says. And, and Prelogger, I think, agrees with that. The chief agrees with that. And, but if you're an originalist, you're done. The early Supreme Court unanimously has a certain view. And it's supported by George Washington and Alexander Hamilton and the early Congress. You're done. This is an easy case. Um, and you don't need to get into Hilton. I assume Pollock was five to four. And the dissenters included John Marshall Harlan. We later actually talk about how uh, the president of the United States, later a later president, who will even after that become chief justice, preeminent conservative, William Howard Taft, actually said Pollock was a disaster. It was a self-inflicted wound, the biggest one the court suffered. Now, that, I'm hoping, is going to actually be of interest to uh, the person who sits in Taft's seat today to the great Chief Justice John Roberts, because he doesn't want to make the same mistake that the Pollock Court did, that William Howard Taft himself, the future Chief Justice, who loved the judiciary far more than the executive branch, said that was really a mistake. And so we're saying, don't focus on Pollock, focus on Hilton, because you, the justices, got it unanimously right in Hilton. Build on that. Well, I mean, you could argue that Pollock looks at Hil at Hilton mm -hmm. um, or Hilton. Mm -hmm. um, so then, you know, you would have to consider Pollock's reasoning as to why they would disregard uh, because they were the stupid Lochner era Plessy era judges who didn't listen to the great John Marshall Harlan. And this is the next paragraph: the people smacked them down with a constitutional amendment, and that's only happened three times in all of American history, and one of the others was Dred Scott. So Harlan was right. It was a disaster for the country, just like he was right in Plessy versus Ferguson when he said, this is another Dred Scott. Listen to Harlan. Pollock was a bad case from a bunch of railroad lawyers, um, fat cats of, of their period. And, and I actually have in the brief, and this was very much at Vic's suggestion as well, here's what we said about this. This was directed at our current Chief Justice. Either we stand with President George Washington, Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton, and the unanimous Supreme Court in 1796, not to mention President Abraham Lincoln and the first Justice John Marshall Harlan, or we stand with Justice Malon Pitney and the other members of the Lochner era court, whose approach to constitutional adjudication was nicely captured by Chief Justice John Roberts in his 2005 confirmation hearing. Quote, you go to a case like the Lochner case, it's quite clear they're not interpreting the law, they're making the law. Final sentence of, of sentences of this summary. Alas, very few of the briefs in today's case even mention, much less discuss, Hilton, notwithstanding its centrality. 
we shall try to redress that oversight here. So we're saying, actually, you should glory, justices today, in one of the great opinions of the Supreme Court. Every bit as great as Marbury versus Madison, it's Hilton. Please read it. You'll actually be proud of what the early Supreme Court did in that case. And it's actually utterly inconsistent with Pollock. And one person who acknowledges the tension is the Solicitor General in her brief. But another person who acknowledges this is none other than John Roberts, because the most important recent tax case was his opinion in the Obamacare decision, the Sebelius case, in which he narrates the history very similar to the way that I've just done and Elizabeth Prelogger did, saying, we, we said this in Hilton, we said direct taxes are only head taxes and real estate taxes. He says that really clear because he's read Hilton and he's a good reader. And that was what we did for a hundred years. Oh, but then in Pollock, we kind of took a turn. And I'm saying, roll the tape, stop for just a second, roll that back just, you know, 10 seconds for, you said this in Hilton, which is the founding period. And for a hundred years, you followed that, supported by people like Abraham Lincoln, who actually assigned into law an income tax, why would you have changed that? That was the wrong turn in the Lochner-Plessy era. So that's largely an ad hominem argument, right? Because so far you haven't said really why Hilton is right. And law is ad hominem to some extent. We do appeal to authority. Some people have more credibility, like John Marshall Harlan, like Abraham Lincoln, like George Washington, like Alexander Hamilton. And we admitted Madison was on the other side. Oh, but then he changed his mind, which is really interesting. Okay, yes, I'm just teeing up. It's not just ad hominem. It's an argument based on precedent saying the Hilton precedent said direct taxes are only capitation tax, head taxes and real estate taxes. I haven't told you why that's so. We do in the rest of the brief explain why that's so. And that was Hamilton's position and the opinion of the unanimous Hilton court. But we are making an argument, not just ad hominem, but an argument based on precedent. And if you're an originalist though, the uh, precedent, the earlier it is, the better, the closer it is to the founding. If you're a different kind of jurist, you might say, no, it's the most recent case that matters, just like it's the most recent statute that matters. Um, different ways of thinking about the authority of precedent. But for an originalist, oh, what you want is precedent very close to the time of enactment. What Caleb Nelson, what Madison in, in, in Federal 37 called liquidation or gloss or settlement. That's the better yeah, precedent. I mean, if you want to know what the people that wrote the Constitution meant when they said these things, then you might want to, you know, look at what they did with them when the question came up. And it, on the you know, in so. the Hilton case, one of the justices, William Patterson, was actually at the Philadelphia Convention, and we quote him for exactly the same thing that John Roberts quotes him for in Sibelius, because John Roberts and Vic and Akil have all read the same case, and we read it the same way because we can read. And Patterson says this, and he himself was at Philadelphia. Iredell says certain things. Oh, and he was in the ratification process and played an important role. A lower court justice who ruled um, the same way but didn't rewrite an opinion at the Supreme Court was James Wilson. Oh, and he was at Philadelphia too. And Alexander Hamilton is the guy who does the oral argument. It's not just that this a, a tax law that's upheld was one that he basically wrote and that Washington and an early Congress backed. 
Washington asked him to come out of private practice. He had stepped down from the Treasury. He asked him, will you please explain this to the justices? You, you know, encourage Congress to pass this law. You encourage me to sign it. You know, this is te- technical stuff. You're no longer Treasury Secretary. Will you come out of private practice to argue? He did. It's the only case he ever argued before the Supreme Court. And he was a rock star even then. Sitting members of Congress played hooky that day. They actually, you know, just wanted to watch the oral argument. And the justices actually were agog at his performance. One of them, Iredell, writes his wife about how impressive Hamilton was, okay? And I didn't know any of these things five years ago. I learned them by reading the great Ron Chernow's biography of Hamilton. And Ron is one of the dedicatees of The Words That Made Us, a a recent book, also a Yale, a very distinguished Yale graduate. And then I read Hylton. I understood how all sorts of things fit together. And Patterson says some of these things. And Iredell says some of these things. And Chase says some of these things. So yes, it, it was a little bit cheeky, truth be told, but I didn't think it was disrespectful to just say, you know, we urge the court just to read this case. It's the key case. And it's actually quite short. You know, by saying that uh, either you know either you're you're with us or you're against us, kind of like either you're with Hylton or you're with Pollock. Yeah, you know, either that's you're your with, choice. Uh, you know, so uh, by say, by making that choice, the American people said we're with Hylton because they drafted the sixteenth. They passed the sixteenth amendment. What? So that's a rejection of Pollock. It is a rejection of Pollock. You could, if you were just trying to slice it very fine, says it's not necessarily a keel, a reaffirmation right. of Hilton. And I'm saying, you're right. That's why I forget the 16th Amendment. Even if the people didn't do that in uh, the 16th Amendment, Hilton was just right from day one, and, th- and that's all I need. Okay, so now you talk about the case itself. Yes. So we're on page five of the brief. And not just the case, the Constitution itself, because I'm a proper originalist, I begin with the Constitution. And So why don't we begin with the Constitution for our audience? What's the relevant language in the Constitution? Great. That's what we should have probably done if we were in Hugo Black fashion. That's how we should have begun everything. So here's when I finally get into the... Oh, it is how we're beginning. Right. So far we just talked about who did what. Right. And and that was the the summary of the argument. Now we're actually going to get into the actual argument where I and Vic elaborate um, all of this. So just to set the scene, this tax that was at issue in Hilton was a tax on carriages. If you're a Jane Austen fan, it's a tax on like things like a Baruch Landau or something like that, um, a Phaeton, these very fancy carriages. It was explicitly, it explicitly exempted taxes on carts and wagons to haul produce. So it frankly attacks on yachts, on Learjets on Rolls Royces, on the fanciest of conveyances. That's what it is. It's a luxury tax, and it's pushed by Alexander Hamilton, you know, who gets a bum rap, someone in favor of rich people. And what was the purpose of the tax? We begin by saying there was actually a war in the West. Money was needed to support this war effort to 
push the British out of certain forts that they had yet to relinquish, and that they're in a, they're native. Some of the native tribes were actually supporting the British, and uh, money was needed for uh, an army operation. And to repeat, you know, uh, you got to pay for it somehow. And this was a tax to pay for national security measures, and it was a tax on carriages. Now, here's the constitutional clauses that are at issue. Article 1, Section 8, open as follows. This is Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1. Quote, the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, unquote. Now, Vic and Akil's voice. With not one, not two, not three, but four distinct nouns, just to repeat, taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, the Constitution proclaimed in the longest section of its first and longest article that the new Congress would have sweeping power to reach into constituents' pockets. Less than a dozen years after staging an anti-tax Revolution in July 1776, Americans had quite evidently drafted an avowedly pro-tax constitution. Constitution about national security. That's going to be about armies. You can't have armies without money. You can't have money without taxes. That's a kills in a big picture vision of the constitution. And when you read the text, because I, I gave you a big picture, you see it in the text. Not one, not two, not three. Four different ways of picking your pocket. Taxes, duties, imposts, and excises. Okay, but that doesn't mention direct taxes. Oh, we haven't gotten to that yet. Exactly so. But at least I'm setting the stage, and I'm giving you a big picture. Now it's that time for those of you who are seeking to earn continuing legal education, that is CLE credit, from listening to this podcast. The New Jersey State Bar Association has made this possible. So you will uh, go to podcast.njsba.com and enter the code for this week. The code is electoral, E-L-E-C-T-O-R-A-L, electoral, and it is not case sensitive. So no problem there, but if you wish to capitalize or not. Thank you to New Jersey State Bar Association once again for making this possible. And just as a reminder, you can earn this credit even if you're not in New Jersey. In fact, if you are a member of either the Pennsylvania or New York bars, you can get the credit uh, directly from them after you uh, go to the website I mentioned. And other states, can you can gain this credit in most other states through uh, reciprocity. So once again, the code is electoral. Okay. Now, here's actually, you know, I'm going to need to, in the end, talk about direct taxes and actually then say, like, what's the point? What's all this about? What's the big idea? Yes, I haven't done that yet. First, though, understanding that why this is so important, because without taxes, we're dead. Okay, and so I need to explain that to the jurors because every member of the Hilton Court understood this. Hamilton understood this. Madison, not so much because Madison wasn't fighting at Valley Forge, but George Washington was, Alexander Hamilton was. They know what happens when you actually can't pay for shoes, can't pay for food for the troops. They get it viscerally. So does, um, in, in a way that, so does John Marshall, I was about to say, who was also at Valley Forge, in a way that 
Madison, not quite so much. But anyway, so I need to explain to the justices the big picture. And so here's um, what I say. Law commands, but rarely explains. However, in two key instances, the preamble and the tax clause, the Constitution did explain itself. Indeed, these two clauses tightly interlinked textually. Article 1, Section 8, proclaimed that Congress needed comprehensive taxing authority to, quote, pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, unquote. An obvious echo of the preamble's overarching purposes, common defense and general welfare. Those are also quotes. Thus, the tax clause highlighted the importance of taxation to the Constitution's entire project. The preamble says what it's all about. It's about common defense and general welfare. And now they're repeating these words, but in one clause. What clause? A tax clause. They're saying this is actually how we implement you know, the big picture vision of the Constitution. Now, we haven't still gotten to direct versus non-direct tax, but we're at least beginning to understand taxes are really important. Do not actually, you know, just play games with this. They thought it was so important that they said a variant of the word four times and said and connected it to the preamble. And this is how the longest section of the first and longest art of the Constitution begins. This is really important stuff. Just if you look at it just locationally, you know, real estate, location, location, location. And, and purpose, purpose, purpose. Now, we're starting to get into the technical issues. Okay. But what, because here's the question that you have at this point, and I'm sure the justice would have, if they were a clerk, reading this amicus brief. What exactly were the differences between the four nouns, taxes, duties, imposts, and excises? Did it matter? The clause implied that for at least one purpose, it did. Three of these four categories, all, this is a quote, duties, imposts, and excises would need to be, this is a quote, uniform. That is governed by the same rates throughout the United States. So for a duty, an impost, or an excise, they all have to be uniform. Okay? And they mention four things and they say three have to be uniform. Duties, imposts, and excises. By strong, ne- now back to Akil and Vick's prose. By strong negative implication, not all taxes, the fourth category, would need to be uniform. Now here's the kicker. In fact, at least one kind of tax, a direct tax, would explicitly need to be non-uniform. Now here's the key language that's the core of the the dispute in my view and Vic's view. Under Article 1, Section 2, such a tax, that is a direct tax, would have to be apportioned among the states to correspond to the number of seats each state would hold in the U.S. House of Representatives. Here's the quote. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers. Now, just to step back, taxes, duties, imposts, and indirect taxes have to be uniform. Direct taxes have to be apportioned by state-by-state by state by population. And I'm about to explain to the reader, those are different things, antagonistic things. You're going to have to have totally different systems to have uniformity on the one hand if it's an excise, 
if it's a duty, if it's an impost, or an indirect tax, and a very different scheme if it's a direct tax that's going to require not uniformity, but state-by-state apportionment. So could you explain what you mean by uniformity? Yes. Uniformity um, basically means if you're going to char- if a carriage tax is $2 per carriage in Massachusetts, it's got to be $2 per carriage in Virginia and $2 per carriage in New York, et cetera, et cetera. It's got to be the same you know, tax in all of the states. That's uniform. Same tax per carriage. Right, so you're taxing something, Mm -hmm. and you're taxing whatever it is you're taxing at the same rate, I suppose. Yes, everywhere. If it's a federal tax, correct. And if it's a direct tax, if it's a federal indirect tax, yes. If it's a direct tax, not only does it not have to be uniform, it can't be uniform because what it has to be is apportioned, and apportionment will be actually the opposite of uniformity as a practical matter for. Any imaginable situation, if it's a direct tax, it actually can't be uniform. It's going to have to be jiggered and varied you know, from place to place, and I'm about to explain to you why. The carriage tax offers a clear illustration of all this. So let's just use the carriage tax example. But, and, and by the way, Andy, I should have said this. In the main argument, we drop a footnote before we begin. Almost all of this main argument is taken directly from the book, The Words That Made Us. We're, um, we lightly edited it, but, but we wanted the justices to know this was a position that one of us took long before this litigation, you know, without knowing you know, whose ox would be gored, who, you know, which party would benefit or not. This is what I wrote many, several years ago, and I'm just lightly editing this. So what you're getting is my views as a constitutional historian. Okay. So here's how it works. We explain. And this is, you can, you, the audience can find this in the, the book, The Words That Made Us. But we're, we're back to the brief here now. I, on, we are. We, we are. On page eight of the brief. Which, by the way, yes, we've already p- uploaded and will continue to upload on the show notes. If an annual tax on the keeping of carriages was properly characterized as a duty, or for that matter, an excise or impost, the duty per carriage would need to be the same, uniform in every state. And that's actually what this Hamilton 1794 tax actually did. But suppose instead that the carriage tax were best viewed as a direct tax. Given that Virginia, under the most recent census, 1790, had 19 seats in the House of Representatives, Massachusetts had 14 seats, any, direct, any federal direct tax on carriages, if it were a direct tax, you see, would have to bring in $19 from Virginians for every $14 from Massachusetts residents. Now, here's the kicker. Carriage ownership per capita would doubtless vary from state to state. Thus, to meet the requisite 19 to 14 ratio, the tax owned on each carriage would could not be uniform. The government would need to jigger the tax state by state. For every 19 carriage tax dollars flowing into federal coffers from Virginia and every 14 from Massachusetts, exactly 13 carriage tax dollars would need to flow from Pennsylvania, 10 from New York, and so on. Next sentence. If the direct tax concept were construed and defined broadly 
its requirement of equal ratios across more than a dozen states would be an administrative nightmare. It would be a nearly insurmountable obstacle to the enactment of a carriage tax. Okay, and then I'm going to give you a specific, you know, mathematical example of, of why that's so. But if it's uniform, it's easy. $2 per carriage in every state. So in other words, the revenue produced by the direct tax has to be proportionate to the representation in Congress. If it's a direct tax, but if it's not, it's a direct tax. right, then it just needs to be uniform, and uniformity we can do. That's easy enough. Suppose we have two states, and this is the example I'm going to use, in the, um, that have the same population. And let's imagine, just forget slaves, imagine two free states. They have the exact same population. If it's a direct tax, then you're going to need to get the same money from each state. But here's the problem. One state may have a lot of carriages, and another state might have a few carriages, and you're going to now need to jigger the rate so you get the same amount. If it's uniform, I don't care if one state has more carriages than others. It's $2 per carriage, and, and we just collect the revenue. But if it's if it has to be, if we say, oh no, it's a direct tax, we're going to have to have the same revenue from these two states, and now we're going to need to adjust the carriage rates, and that's going to be an impossible thing to do. So here's the example I use in the brief, Andy, on just this point. If among two equal-sized states, one state had 100 carriages, and another state had 800 the tax per luxury carriage would need to be eight times higher in the former state, which is likely to see the poorer state to equalize state revenue and satisfy the dictates of apportionment. So one state's wealthy, it's got a lot of carriages. The other state's poor, it's got a few carriages. If you have the uniform rate, fine, just $2 per carriage, whatever. But if it's a direct tax, I'm going to actually have to charge more per carriage in the state with fewer carriages, which is likely to be the poorer state. And, oh, that doesn't make a lot of sense, actually. So we don't want, this is Hamilton's argument, in fact, and what the court agrees in Hilton, Hilton, and what John Roberts describes the court as saying in the later Sibelius case, it doesn't make a lot of sense to require poorer states to have higher you know, federal taxes per carriage. So you shouldn't lightly sweep stuff into the direct tax category because you're making going to make it very difficult to collect taxes, and taxes are what you need for the army, and the army is what you need to remain a nation. That's Hamilton's not, argument and Akil's argument. It's not so much that you shouldn't do it. It's that they didn't want you to do it. In other words, that that wasn't what they meant exactly. when they, when they sure. defined yeah, direct Because you need to understand what... It wouldn't have made any sense right. to do it that way. Right. So therefore, that isn't what they meant. Exactly so. Not that, not that you only do the thing that's easier to do. No. But that in understanding what they meant, they, they had to... They meant something that made sense. So exactly. This doesn't make sense. So here's what Hamilton says at Oral Argument. Let me just give you one other example. Suppose one state had zero carriages. How much money is it going to come in from that state from the carriage tax? Well, it's going to be zero Correct. No, matter how, no matter what rate. Correct. So, but if it's a direct tax, if you bring zero in from one state, how much do you get to bring in from any other state? Zero. zero. So one state screws up the whole system. Now, here's the kicker. And Jacob Hutt encouraged me to put this in. Suppose one state actually is just 
you know, angry at the federal government. It outlaws carriages. So now there are no carriages in that state. Now you're going to get zero from that state, and now you can't get any money from any other state. So these are mathematically you know, odd or absurd results. And here's what Hamilton says about that. After he explains this carefully at oral argument, well, he said- just, just to go. Just to go a little further, it's not just that it's absurd, it's that it would, you know, it would, it would put a power in the hands of any state to, to affect whether or not any of the other yes, states yes. could. Yes. So, so, so and that, that can't have been the intent. Exactly. So here's what he says. This is from his oral argument, okay? An overly broad definition of the direct tax category could easily generate either ruinous tax rates in the relatively, you know, carriage-free states, you know, charging, um, you know, ridiculous rates, or worse still, simply, quote, defeat the power of laying, unquote, this, the tax altogether. This is Hamilton's argument. This would just defeat the power. Back to Hamilton. This is a consequence that ought not result from construction, that is interpretation, and then my paraphrase, if a more practical and plausible alternative were available. Here's his test. No construction, no interpretation ought to prevail, calculated to defeat the express and necessary authority of the government. It would be contrary to reason and to every rule of sound construction to adopt a principle for regulating the exercise of a clear constitutional power which would defeat the exercise of the power, okay? So that's, you know, his 18th century terminology, but he's saying just what you and I are basically saying. Look, unless there's clear evidence that this is what they want, don't assume that they're actually arguing in circles and chasing their own tail and, and, and saying, we want taxes, oh, but we don't want taxes. <laughs> you know, we need revenue, but oh, we can't do it. And you know, we want to create a federal government that actually can do stuff, oh, but any state can frustrate it at, at any time. Okay, so given, so if that's the case, that this case is about whether a carriage tax is a direct tax. Yes, right? that's the so Hilton case. The argument case. is then, Right, that that it can't be a direct tax because if it were, you would have this these absurd situations. Um, and okay, so if a carriage tax isn't a direct tax, what does that have to do with a repatriation tax well, being a direct tax? Here's the the missing link that we're going to need to discuss. Okay, if a carriage tax isn't a direct tax, Akil, Alexander. You know, Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. Okay. What is a direct tax? What's the test? Okay. Because it's not a null set. It's not an empty category. Even if now you've given us some reasons to want to hold for you because the, the, the result on the other side is absurd. Fine, but you need to help us a little bit more because we're going to need to have some definition of direct tax because they use the phrase. It's got to mean something. So what is it and why? And what's the rule that we as judges should follow? Okay. And Hamilton's bottom line, well, back to the brief, but you know, the bottom line is going to be two and only two things are direct taxes head taxes and real estate taxes and nothing else. And he's going to give us uh, some reasons why that's the sensible understanding of direct tax and in what way, you know, I actually explain a little bit more that those taxes aren't just sensible but sensibly understood as direct 
that word. I'm actually going to skip just a little bit and just answer that question and come back. In a nutshell, the basic idea is a direct tax should be something, it has to be a kind of tax as to which there's not a zero problem. It's got to be, because if there's a zero problem, zero screws up everything because you can't divide by zero. Every state is going to have, it may not have a carriage, okay, but it's going to have people. So a head tax, oh, it's not going to have a zero problem. Oh, and it's going to have land. It won't have zero land. So, So head taxes and land taxes tend not to involve the zero problem. Here's another point. Um, given that if you have apportionment, it's got to be apportioned in connection with the most recent census, ideally, a direct tax is going to be something that you can easily measure with a census. You can measure heads. That's actually what you do in a census. Actually, the early census is also uh, measured land values. But it's going to be hard to have a census about every carriage in a state or every hogshead of tobacco or every cask of wine or something like that. But you, every 10 years, you may be able to measure number of people in a state and the value of, of real estate in a state. So given that the apportionment rule, which is connected to the direct tax rule, is in turn connected to the census, Hamilton gives you a couple of actually tools. Direct taxes should be connected to stuff that is connected to an easy-to-administer census and should be something that doesn't ever implicate the zero problem. And then you can say, well, what makes that direct? And there's going to be one additional third kicker, and it's all about slavery. So let me tell you about the slavery angle, Andy, because all of this, unfortunately, was part of a stinky pro-slavery compromise. My book, America's Constitution, a biography in 2005, has basically three big claims. The Constitution is more democratic than we thought. It's more about national security and geography than we thought. And I've been talking about national security. And actually, it's more pro-slavery than we'd like to admit. Three-fifths clause is a huge part of a lot of the Constitution. Oh, and it's connected to this provision too. I'm not sure they understood just how much three-fifths would ramify through everything. And Lincoln is later going to say, yeah, they they expected slavery to sort of phase out. And, and I'm with Lincoln on a bunch of this stuff. But let me actually explain how three, this direct tax idea was connected to a pro-slavery compromise. And this is another reason not to read it expansively. Hamilton gave us some reasons just for functional revenue purposes. Patterson, one of the justices at the oral argument at Hilton, who was also there in Philadelphia, actually says very explicitly, Hilton, it was also part of a big pro-slavery compromise, so we shouldn't read it broadly. Oh, John Marshall Harlan, the elder after the Civil War in the Pollock case, says this also alas, in dissent. It's part of a big pro-slavery compromise, stinky one, don't read it broadly. This is also the theme of an excellent article by Professor Bruce Ackerman 25 years ago in the Columbia Law Review on taxation and the Constitution, saying it was part of a big, stinky pro-slavery compromise. And I'm going to explain to you how the compromise worked, the deal. Okay, so first, let's look at the text. The text of the Constitution says that one kind of tax is a direct tax. It's a capitation head tax. Why do we know that? Here's another provision of the Constitution. Article 1, Section 9. No capitation or other direct tax, dot, dot, dot. 
So the text of the Constitution read holistically is saying capitation is a direct tax. And it's also saying, gee, there's at least one other thing that probably needs to be a direct tax because it says no capitation or other direct tax, okay? So, you know, um, why is capitation a direct tax? What makes it a direct tax? What's that all about? And what else would fall in that direct tax category? And here's actually how this pro-slavery, rather stinky deal worked. Because a capitation tax was a direct tax subject to apportionment state by state, Congress could not tax slave property and thus effectively move the country toward abolition simply by taxing all slave ownership uniformly, $2 per slave head. That's, that they, they're not allowed to do that. They're allowed to say $2 per carriage, but not $2 per slave head. So here's the brief on this. The heads of slaves could not be taxed in the same way as the heads of cattle or heads of lettuce the latter two of which would simply be subject to the requirement of uniformity. $2 per head of lettuce, $2 per head of cattle, $2 per hogshead of tobacco. But you can't have $2 per slave because that's a capitation and that's a direct tax and that's going to need to be apportioned. So what's the rule on all this? A tax on slave property, on slave heads under the Constitution, would have to raise as much money in abolitionist Massachusetts as it did from slave dense Virginia, accounting for different size of the two states, House delegations, making a tax on slavery completely impossible. So, you know, just in, in, in other words, head taxes, including taxes on the heads of slaves, are, the Constitution tells us, capitation taxes. Capitation taxes are direct taxes. It tells us that. And the direct taxes have to be apportioned and, you can, and as a practical matter, that's going to mean you can't have a, a slave tax because it would have to bring in as much money proportionally from Massachusetts as from Virginia, and it's going to bring in zero dollars from Massachusetts because Massachusetts doesn't have slaves. So they're trying to make it hard to tax slaves. I mean, even if it had only a few slaves. Then you'd have to tax those would, slaves would, at be, a gazillion dollars per be, slave. Right, exactly. Yes. Right. So, right. So even if you, you know, brought in a slave just to make it possible, but it, it, and, it wouldn't right, work. Right, because then what happens, you're going to take that slave out because you don't want to pay a gazillion dollars per slave and now you're back to zero. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. So we now have... And so it's, not that a, it's not that a slave tax would be illegal, but it would be it would be impossible unworkable yes right right and here's what hamilton's saying don't read the clause to make taxes unworkable and he's right but the, what there was one kind of tax that they did want to make unworkable cuz it was part of a big stinky pro slavery accommodation they did want to make right. slave taxes unworkable, but they didn't want that's to make exactly. carriage taxes unworkable, lettuce taxes unworkable, um, even tobacco taxes unworkable, but slave taxes they wanted to make unworkable. Right. That's, that, it makes sense because if you wanted to devise a system that allowed you to tax, you want to tax. You said that. Yeah. You don't want to tax slaves if you're from the South yep. because you don't want to get screwed. Yeah. 
So this, this would accomplish that. Right. So that's a reasonable, it's consistent with that. Yes. But now they say no capitation or other direct tax. So I need at least one more thing. And Hamilton saying, don't put in lots more things because actually that's going to make things, you know, very unworkable. So, but, but at least one more thing. And Hamilton tells me what that one other thing is. He tells me, in addition to a head tax, a direct tax on real estate is also a direct tax. And he says that at Philadelphia, he says that in one of the key Federalist papers, Federalist 36, he says that in his oral argument, and he says, and, and the justices in Hilton all agree with him about that. So they say there are two, and basically only two categories of direct taxes, capitation taxes, head taxes for some slavery-related reasons, and land taxes. And I'm going to explain why land taxes get swept in, but here are a couple of things already, because every state's going to have land, so there's no zero problem. And land is going to be easy enough to measure in a census, unlike this other stuff. So you actually can administer it through a census. A third reason was, uh, and now, but Akhil, what makes them direct? And I say, well, if you're a textualist, here's one way of understanding the direct idea. A direct tax is a tax that's very, very difficult to avoid. Now, a carriage tax is easy as heck to avoid. Just don't buy a carriage or sell your carriage. And in fact, at oral argument, it's exactly the argument Hamilton makes. He says, carriages are luxury items. You don't need them. He says, as a matter of fact, I once had a carriage. I sold it, and I'm, and I'm just as happy. So he's actually saying necess- taxes on luxuries are not direct taxes. Okay, head tax. Well, my head is actually, you know, pretty necessary. It's not a luxury. You know, if I lose my head, I lose my life. Yeah, I can avoid a capitation tax by dying, but that's a, okay. I can avoid a carriage tax very easily. Sell my carriage. Don't buy a carriage. Can't avoid a capitation tax except by dying. Not so easy. What about a land tax? Well, in the framer's world where a lot of middling folk inherited a homestead, from their fathers. They might actually be land rich in a certain way. Um, They own some acreage. They own a homestead, but they're cash poor. And if you impose a tax on their homestead, and um, in a world where there's not a lot of specie, not a lot of currency, hard money, not a lot of banks, and no easy ability the way there is today with you know mortgages and all the rest to take money out of your piggy bank called your, your house and, and to do it in an amortized way. None of those things existed at that time. There were a lot of people who are land rich or, um, or comfortable, but cash poor, and they're not going to be able to pay the tax man with ready money, and they're going to lose their family homesteads. A direct tax in Hamilton land, and he says this very explicitly at Philadelphia, in the Federalist Papers, and in the oral argument at Hilton. He says, and then I can give you the, like me the reasons again, there are two kinds and only two kinds of direct taxes, head taxes and land taxes. Why? Okay, because he says, because you can administer them through a census, both head taxes and land taxes. And neither one has a zero problem. And they're both kind of very hard to avoid without severe hardship. You have to lose your head or lose your home, and those are severe hardships. So that's his definition of direct tax, and the court buys it in Hylton. 
And I have to say that, you know, the way you describe the house, it doesn't, it sounds very much like an unrealized game. You know, in other words, that you, that you have your house, um, but, you know, if you want to tax it, you don't really have cash to pay the tax and you can't easily sell the house. Well, it's not a gain at all. It's not a gain at all. Okay. The house may have lost value. It's not a, okay. Now this is now the Achille economist and Alexander Hamilton economist. Income is about uh, a, a, a change in your wealth. Okay. I am saying that houses were particularly illiquid forms of wealth at the founding and are not today because you can take the money out. You, you can pay the tax man very easily if you have equity in your house, if you own a house. You couldn't do that back then. Okay, and the wealth taxes today that are being thought of, or this even this mandatory repatriation tax, all the rest are on investment assets that are relatively easy to monetize. So nothing actually like homes at the founding. There is an amicus brief that tries to make an analogy uh, that actually talks about Hilton that tries to make an analogy between homes at the founding, real estate, and investments in India that don't generate realization. It's an amicus brief by Ed Meese, joined by our friend Steve Calabresi and Gary Lawson. And we actually have a section of the brief saying, we actually don't think that's a very strong analogy. So the, the fact that, um, that the land is you know, somewhat immutable, you know, that you're, you know, you, you've got the land, you can't really sell it easily, um, that seems like a reason to not tax it. And they don't, they're trying to discourage, these are the taxes that they're making difficult by requiring apportionment. A tax on slaves is not impossible, but difficult to federal tax. A tax on land is not impossible, but made more difficult. We're discouraging these sorts of taxes. But Hamilton says, we don't want to discourage all forms of taxes. So here's what Alexander Hamilton says in Philadelphia. He actually has a plan, his alternative constitutional plan. Here's his plan. Taxes on lands, houses, and other real estate and capitation taxes shall be proportioned in each state. So he's telling you, you know, in, 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 on his plan, what should be subject to the apportionment rule. To repeat, lands, houses, and other real estate and capitation taxes. That's it. Now, what does he say in the Federalist Papers? on this. He says in the Federalist Papers, he has seven Federalist essays on taxation, and here's his definition of direct tax. He says direct taxes beyond capitations are, quote, taxes taxes on, quote, real property or houses and lands. And that's the same thing that he says at oral argument with a little wrinkle that I don't want to go into right now. But, um, but so three times Alexander Hamilton says that's what a direct tax is. Now, what do the justices say after they hear him say all of that? Here's Justice Chase, quote, direct taxes contemplated by the Constitution are only two, to wit, a capitation and a tax on land. So, When John Roberts writes the most important tax case of the modern era, here's how he describes the court's decision in Hilton. He says, the Hilton court was unanimous 
and those justices who wrote opinions either directly asserted or strongly suggested that only two forms of taxation were direct, capitations and land taxes. And then he cites Justice Iredale and Justice Patterson. Then he goes on to say one more sentence, that narrow view of what a direct tax might be persisted for a century. That's a lot of the logic of the brief. There's more. Um, and we'll get into it next time with, uh, with Vic. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also interested in, in hearing a little bit about uh, some of the backstory on some of this stuff, like with the Pollock case and things like that. So Pollock repudiates this. Pollock holds unconstitutional a certain income, kind of income tax in a certain way. Pollock actually comes before the court a couple of times, but in one incarnation, here's actually what Pollock says. In reliance on Hilton, an income tax is imposed in the Civil War, and Abraham Lincoln signs it to law, and the Supreme Court upholds it. So Abraham Lincoln is kind of on board with this understanding. Now, later in the 19th century, there's another income tax, and the court invalidates it in Pollock. Pollock comes up to the court a couple of times, but here was one key objection. This income tax includes a tax not just on wage income, but on rental income. And a tax on rental income is, in effect, a tax on real estate, a tax on the underlying land, and that's a direct tax, and that flunks the Hilton test. Now, in fact, it isn't really quite, because either functionally or formally, functionally, if it's a tax on rental income, money's coming in, and you just take part of that money, and you give it to the tax man, and, and you're not selling your homestead or anything like that. And formally, it's not a tax on the land, it's a tax on income generated by the land. And that's true whether or not actually the, the rental income is realized or plowed back. If you say, okay, we're, you know, you're our tenant, and instead of giving me the rent, I want you to put it back into the property by making an improvement on the property that increases the value of the property or something. It'd still be rental income, I would say, even if it's not realized in, in your pocket, but now your piece of property is worth more. And under the Irving Fisher definition of income, you, you've had a, a change, positive change in, your, in wealth, a, a delta in your wealth. Okay. Delta is the Greek letter, but it means change it, in math. Exactly. Thank you, Andy. I was, I was thinking, no, it's not Latin. It's not Latin. Yes, it's it's Greek for the change. You might say, well, they're not ruling out all income taxes. They're just ruling out uh, income taxes that include rental income. But good luck on fairness grounds taxing a working stiff for his wages, you know, but not someone else for their rental income. But at least to that extent, Pollock is actually connected to Hilton in a certain way. Now, the court later goes on to say some other things that go way beyond Hilton. But here's one fun story. One part of Pollock actually seems to be connected to Hilton in a way, talking about rental income and direct taxes and, and rental income being connect, connected to land. Other parts of Pollock eventually repudiate even that, go way beyond Hilton. Now, John Marshall Harlan, the elder dissents and says this is disastrous, and there are four justices who, who dissent in all of, of this, and eventually the people overturn it with an 
income tax amendment, the 16th Amendment. And Pollock, in, in later incarnations, is more aggressive than just the point about rental income on real estate. Um, so that now they're going even beyond Hilton, way beyond Hilton under any understanding of Hilton. But the narrow argument about rental income on land being in effect like a land tax was that that idea, it, um, it is said, was generated by a man named Southmade, Charles Southmade. He didn't argue the case as law partners argue the case. His, he was from a fa fancy Boston firm, I think Choate, Holland, Stewart. And that was his big claim to fame, is he generated this you know, clever idea that the Supreme Court bought. I think he died without children. In any event, his family, the Southmade family, gave Yale a big pot of money. They created a chair in his name. And they initially, at one point early in the 20th century, they gave the chair to a great tax professor named Boris Bitker, a tax god. He actually published a five-volume treatise on tax. <laughs> but in that treatise, he said, South May's theory was bunk. Okay, and drops a footnote saying, I know he actually gave you a lot of money. Don't blame him for my ideas. But Charles South May's idea were a lot of hooey. And that's what the great Boris Bitker said. And Boris Bitker later gets a sterling chair. Okay. Then they later give this chair to little old Akhil Amar, and he actually, in 2005, writes about taxation in America's Constitution, a biography, and he says, oh, this South-made argument is totally bunk, and that's when Akhil Amar had the South-made chair. So this is what happens, Andy, when you give money to universities. You know, They take your money, and then they give it to some person who spits on your grave. <laughs> but that's called you know, academic freedom. Yes. Indeed. It's good. You told that story once before, but it's, it's a good one. Oh, I did tell it once before. Okay. Well, at least it's, you know, it's, it's a true story. So, so I'm sticking, I'm sticking with it. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, next time we're going to have way more on this and I, audience, I encourage you to look up the, uh, the brief on our, our show notes, you know, just, you know, for those of you that say, well, what show notes, um, if you're listening on, you know, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or one of those that you don't you don't see show notes. But even even if you do use that to get your your uh, Amarica's Constitution fix, you can go to akilamar.com slash podcast hyphen two, which is uh, where the where the podcast is originally located, and there are show notes for for all to to sample and read and enjoy. And we have them back to our very first episode. All sorts of stuff. You know, briefs, law review articles, videos, you name it. So I suggest that you check that out. And of course, you know, those of you that are eligible, don't forget to take advantage of your opportunity to get continuing legal education, which uh, I don't think anybody could argue that this podcast was anything but a legal education. Uh, so uh, podcast.njsba dot com and uh it'll be waiting for you i apologize for telling that war story again but here is now the, the sequel which i don't think i told last time i loved tax um, my tax teacher mike gratz a great man who wrote the case book that uh that i used i think it was originally Irwin griswold's case book uh, the great dean of the harvard law school um, former solicitor general I did well in the class. He said, Akhil, you, you actually wrote the best exam in the class and you, 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 know, you were really good. And I, I loved tax. 
and but we needed more tax professors. So at one point, early in my career, and I go up to Boris Bitker, who wrote this great five-volume treatise on tax. And Boris was the nicest person. He just was always very um, kind to me. When he eventually uh, donated all his books to the Yale Law School Library, he said, Akhil, go through my library first, take whatever you want first, and then I'll, I'll give the other books to the, the library. So he was always very, very kind to me. And he was fascinated by constitutional law. And he wrote about the overlap of tax law and constitutional law, taxpayer standing. He, he wrote about, and tax deductions and credits in church and state issues. He wrote a whole treatise on the Dormant Commerce Clause. So Boris Bitker was a great intellect and very broad. Uh, wrote a, an article about the Nazi saboteur case, a case called Ex Party Quirin. So he understood that there were connections between tax law and constitutional law, and he was interested in everything. And so I go up to him at some point, because we really need tax professors. He said, I said, you know, Boris, he said, I'm thinking about maybe trying to teach the intro tax class because I really love tax and we need it taught. And he looked at me and he was kind of giving me this very avuncular look. He says, Akil, I think you're doing okay just where you are, which was his way, very politely of saying, Akil, listen, anyone can do constitutional law, you know, tax profession, but like tax law, this is serious shit. You know, we do not need <laughs> amateurs, you know, coming in because they think tax is fun or something like that. So I never actually taught tax law because, you know, my dear friend, mentor, the great Boris Bicker told me to stay in my lane. <laughs> well, Kiel, if you want more tax, you can have some of mine. <laughs> All right. So until next week, we'll see you then.